This is the Equip Podcast hosted at Rocky Creek in Greenville, South Carolina. This weekly course seeks to equip our church for the work of ministry. Hope it will help you as well. Uh, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to be there in just a little bit. Um, and then uh, hopefully you've got your, your worksheet. We're going to continue on. I, I do want to tell you we're going to... Um, next week we'll possibly be the last week that we're going to do this i've kind of i've kind of been torn on some things but we're, we're going into some uh, other stuff while while the book of daniel today was a nice little break from all the beasts and the visions and whatnot uh, it's going to get into some more end time stuff in the next few weeks let me ask you a question how many of you love discussions on end times like you just geek out about it, you love it okay great how many of you are scared to death of it raise your hand okay confuses you right um, I, I do want to take uh, some of our Sunday nights, and we're going to unpack a little bit more about uh, just those types of studies and whatnot. I just don't know if we're going to start next week or the following week. We're going to line some of that up with Daniel. But tonight, I do want us to talk to you about the um, what I call the, the uh, changing of majority that's on your list there. Uh, and while the standard of morality within the United States continues to drift, Christians are left facing a different spiritual landscape with the changing of the majority's beliefs, we must adapt to ensure biblical faithfulness in rebellious times. And so, obviously, the, you know, whoever is the president will typically give a State of the Union address. I want to give one for us uh, here tonight uh, just to give us a, a little bit of, uh, I think, history that will sort of help us understand some of the church's level of uh, discomfort, especially in this election cycle. Um, how many of you remember the beginnings of the moral majority? Anybody? Okay. All uh, right. Uh, so... Um, Last, a couple summers ago, we spent a, um, a week, uh, I preached at Liberty University for a camp that was there. Uh, and if, any of you, if you've ever been to Liberty University, it is a campus that has taken over the city. Okay, I mean, it is unbelievable. This is not a little JV college. This is a huge deal where obviously Jerry Falwell started years ago. Uh, and, and his goal was what the... the the tagline for the school was training champions for Christ. That was the goal, training champions for Christ. Um, when we went two years ago, it was a very interesting um, discovery. We were sitting in the kind of pavilion area, all these buildings there, and there's this courtyard. And I, I pointed to Amanda. I said, I want you to look on that, that, um, that wall there outside of the, their main building. And she said, what about it? And I said, look at it. And she said, well, it says we the champions. I said, look a little bit deeper. She says, I mean, what do you want me to look? I said, look at the font. And she said, what do you mean? I said, the font. What does the font look like? She goes, um, she goes, it kind of looks like the Constitution. I said, yeah. And I said, so, and so instead of the tagline two years ago when we were there, instead of it being training champions for Christ, it was called We the Champions. Or We the was it We the Champions, right? Yeah, We the Champions. It kind of sounds like an old Queen song, right? Like, uh, but uh, it says We the Champions. And what had taken place was that while Falwell had started this school on this idea of let's train champions for Christ that will influence culture, in recent years, he's, he's passed away and his son was at the helm of it until just a couple months ago when he got into some issues and got removed from that post. Um, it got into a very dangerous position that even before his son was removed from his position, there were a lot of people saying this. This school and this message and these people who were leading this out, they don't seem Christian. They seem conservative. Okay? And you may go, is there a difference? There's a difference. Okay? One is trying to get out champions for Christ and share the gospel with people, and the other is trying to influence things within government structures. You follow? 
And so the, the change in logo and me looking at the Constitution uh, font and saying, we the champions, I'm like, okay, I wonder what is the shift that's going on here. But for those of you that know, the, the Moral Majority was founded in 1979 as a way to represent political activism from a religious viewpoint. So the whole go goal of the Moral Majority by Jerry Falwell and uh, I think Pat Robertson and different ones that were part of this at the time was that they sort of formed this coalition of let's uh, represent political activism but do it from a religious viewpoint. Let's get in the middle of the, the civic square. Let's get in the middle of politics. Let's get in and sort of come because saying this, we are a moral majority within the country, so let's use that clout, that power, that influence to kind of really put some pressure on some politicians, right? So uh, how many of you remember, you said you remember the beginning of this? I don't, I wasn't born yet, but I'm just saying that later on, okay, uh, throughout all of this, when, when you go through it, um, this was the, the high, I would say, part of what, what I've read is, uh, really during the Reagan administration was when it reached the highest level of influence in our country, right? But as a legitimate political force, it strongly encouraged conservative values in civic arenas, okay? And when I say it's a legitimate political force, many of you know it was a legitimate political force. Now, um, I'm not here saying that what that was was a bad thing. I'm just saying, though, when that is your thing, if you can't be the majority anymore, what do you have to stand on? And what's taken place from 1979 to 2020 is quite a difference in the last 41 years, right? Huge difference. And, and so this, this idea is that we can't really necessarily say that the Christian um, worldview is the moral majority anymore, right? And I, I know we don't want to admit that. It's even hard for me to say it. But I think we can accurately say there are certain states and certain areas and certain regions that you can look on. Uh, and the pollsters will tell you that, oh, this region over here, they believe this and these kind of conservative Christians and whatnot. But what happened is that as that changed, uh, with losses among key battleground issues, the group dissolved officially, but the mindset still remains. So there were some losses around key battleground issues over the last 41 years. Okay, So since 1979, have there been some um, moral deviations that have been legislated in our country in the last 41 years? Whew. I mean, unbelievable. Um, I would... I, you. If somebody told me 10 years ago what's happened in the last 10 years, I would have said, you're lying. No way. Maybe 30 years from now, but not in 10. But it's been so rapid, so quick, and it's just happened at such a rapid pace, which has made, obviously, a lot of us very uncomfortable. And so beliefs that were not even accepted a few terms ago among liberal politicians are now brazenly celebrated as the new standard. We have mentioned here that even in the second term of President Obama, he changed his stance on certain issues, right? And there's a lot of um, discussion that goes into it. Did he change his viewpoint in the middle of it, or did he know in his second term he couldn't lose? He could do whatever he wanted to do. And I don't know the man's heart. I don't know the, the man's thinking, but I do know there's video clips of him running for office the first time saying, no, I believe in this, and I'm a this, and I don't believe in that. I wouldn't support that. And then second term is in, and he says, let me tell you, <laughs> change my mind. And he starts enforcing certain things, right? Um, there's always a little bit of freedom when there's a second term politician. They say, like, okay, we got a little freedom. But those things that weren't, that weren't accepted a few terms ago among liberal politicians, they're brazenly celebrated as the new standard. And what we would consider as liberal a few years ago is moderate now, right? 
It's what used to be like, oh, wow, that's way out there. That, that's, that's the moderate position. And so um, one of the things that I, I was reading in a book that I thought was a great thing, there's, there's a lot of, um, a couple of people that I would encourage you to read. Bruce Ashford has a couple of good books on politics. Uh, Russell Moore has a book called Onward about Christian, uh, Christians and politics and different things. A lot of these resources are very good. Bruce Ashford has, has two books. One is called One Nation Under God, and I think the other is Letters for the American Christian. Helps you think through this. But in Russell Moore, he has a great quote that made me think through a great way to word this. But if we are losing the moral majority position, we cannot forfeit the prophetic minority position. I, I love that thought process of, is okay, so while it would be great for us to have the moral majority, if it's not there, what do you do? Well, you don't lose the prophetic minority. You keep saying the truth, even if it's not the most popular uh, way to live. And so um, when we look at the book of Daniel, there was obviously things that he said, right, that were probably very controversial in his days. Uh, and we're going to look at one prophet as well uh, named Elijah that said some things very controversial in his days. And yet, even though the nation of Israel was not in the moral majority of following the Bible, that did not stop Elijah from doing what he needed to do. So we're going to talk about this, the troubler of the people. Some of you know where this phrase will come from um, in First uh, Kings 18, uh, because King Ahab is going to look at Elijah the prophet coming up, and he's going to say, you troubler of Israel, you're the troubler of this nation. And where all this started was is that King Solomon's tolerance of pagan religions among God's people opened the door for widespread relativism. Okay, So when King Solomon started tolerating pagan religions, by the way, why did he start tolerating pagan religions? Does anybody remember? He married some ladies who had some other gods. It wasn't just one lady, right? He had quite a few, okay? Quite a few ladies. And so, what do you want, honey? I want a God to, you know, back home, okay? I'll build you one over there. Well, I want one if she's got one that's not fair. Okay, I'll get you one there. I mean, it's hard enough buying one thing for one lady for Christmas, let alone a thousand ladies, right? He's putting up idols and statues everywhere, everywhere. And so now the culture is going, huh? So you mean to tell me that if I need this, I need to go to that God because that God specializes in it. Um, so if you've ever um, gone to a certain area in the world where there's actually statues that are up to represent certain gods. I've been in Asia. I remember looking at an idol a statue there. I mean, it was a... And, and, and this area is kind of unique because if you've ever followed Buddhism, Buddhism, they, they really don't have this... The, their version of God is kind of irrelevant. If you believe in God, that's great. If you don't believe in God, big deal. So their Buddha statues are not God... But they do represent someone who's been enlightened in the path. And I can remember one time going to this big Buddha statue and seeing all these ladies that were around it. And, uh, and they said, you go and you, you basically give gifts to this statue, this particular Buddha, if you're having infer infertility problems. And, you know, he'll help. And I go, well, how does he help? And they're like, we don't know. We just hope he does. And I said, well, does this one do anything else? They're like, nope, just infertility. I thought, huh. That's the only thing he specializes in, at least the only thing. I said, okay. Um, and so you can imagine that in this situation, Solomon has set it up to where, okay, if fertility is your issue, go there. If wealth is what you need, go over there. If you need, you know, uh, event, you need to avenge something, go over to this person. So, so this is what happens is that is now reached a probably one of the top thresholds with a guy by the name of Ahab as king. His wife is Jezebel, right? Um, and if we go in, we'll start um, in verse number one. 
It says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties uh, in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive, not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. So let me get this picture. These are the prophets in God's nation, and they're having to move around and be careful so that they're not getting caught doing what God's called them to do. Okay, So they are not in the majority position anymore. Okay, Verse 7, um, And as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. Okay, Ahab is looking everywhere to kill Elijah. Why? Because Elijah is preaching the Bible. And the king of God's people cannot stand this prophet who is preaching the Bible. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. Verse 11, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here. As soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord for my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? I love that line. All right? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now um, let me just stop here for a second. So you see this picture. Obadiah has heard so much that hey he hates you so much Elijah as soon as he hears he's going to kill me. He's going to kill you. This is over. And he says I'm going to go. I'm going to meet him today. Just go and tell him I'm on my way. So I love it. Ahab sees the prophet coming, and he goes, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now, what is that a sign of? He's saying this. You're messing up all our fun. You're saying too often, Thus saith the Lord, and reminding us that we need to tear down these statues, and we don't need to worship any god but the God of the Bible, and you're ruining it for us. You're a troubler of Israel. Now, folks, let me just ask you a question. In the last 41 years, 41 years ago, the church seemed like a good in society. And now we are viewed as a troubler of the United States of America. That's the way I feel. I, I feel almost as if, um, I kind of joke, but normally it's not the first thing I lead out when I meet new neighbors. Oh, by the way, I'm a Southern Baptist pastor. They're like, oh, great. You know, one of those guys, right? That's typically sometimes they get. Rightfully so. They've got, unfortunately, they've got a lot of bad examples in their past, and there's a lot out there. And so sometimes it can be almost a detriment to trying to start a relationship with people. 
But we are seen now in America not as a standard of what's right, but as a standard of what's wrong. The only thing that this country is allowed to intolerate are those that are intolerable of the Christian religion, or, or that are intolerable as Christian Christians, saying that they believe that this is the only way. It's the only thing that's unacceptable. Everything else, oh, free game. You can do whatever deviation you want to do, as long as you don't say, Jesus Christ is the only way. Um, does our culture... Politicians and celebrities love, love, love to quote certain phrases of Jesus. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they love it. They love certain phrases of Jesus. It's hip to like certain parts of Jesus. But you really start getting into the Bible? Now, we're not talking about that version, right? We just like things about love one another. That's what we want to do. That's why even um, the nature of the crucifixion, people in our culture will say that Jesus died on the cross. Why did he do that? To show us how to love one another. I, he could have done it in an easier way if that was the whole goal, right? Send a card, for goodness sake, if you're going to show somebody you love it. What is the cross about? Our sins are so grievous towards God, someone has to die. And our culture goes, we don't want to hear that. Why? Because we don't want to know that we're in sin. So the church is now in a place where we feel like we are troubling the nation versus being what's right for the nation. And Elijah wasn't persecuted because he followed the Lord he was persecuted because he told others they should too. See, if Elijah would just kept to himself and kept his mouth closed, not a big deal. No big issues. But the problem was, is he kept going around saying, this is what King Ahab has been commissioned by God to do. The scripture says what our kings are supposed to be. And yet he is not doing this. And so he is now against God's prophet speaking to God's people. You turn on the back side of this page, uh, and, and I do think that it is important for us to realize that prideful politicians will blame biblical believers for causing tension among the people. Prideful politicians will love not to blame what they're doing to disunify a culture, but they want to blame biblical believers for causing tension among the people. How dare you hold those backward beliefs? How dare you go against the policy that was set three years ago in the United States of America and obviously has been the standard, right? Three years. I mean, the things that have been passed in our country is it's almost like it's been here for hundreds of years. We're talking about the eternal word of God that has been around longer than even our country has been around. And it still holds fast. Still holds fast. And so as we go through this... Um, the nation is going to continue to increase and go away, especially when there's a pagan king that is leading God's people. And so Elijah does seem as a troubler. He's going to blame those people for doing wrong. Um, sin leads to chaos, and obedience leads to peace. When we look at this um, passage of Scripture, we see that sin is leading to chaos. There's a trouble in the nation, and the king doesn't want to admit that it's on him. Um, Obedience leads to peace. Um, the issue is, if we think about the sliding scale of certain things on morality, what's so fearful, I would say for me and probably for some of you, what used to not even be thinkable now um, is paraded around as normative, right? First television show you watched, okay? Y'all remember the shows that wouldn't even show things as risque as a full-size bed, full bed in the bedroom, Right? You, I mean, that, that was, if, if anything, if there was a, the first probably kiss on television was shocking. The first bathing suit on television was shocking, right? Just unthinkable. And now what is paraded in front of us as normative on commercials, right? Um, 
agenda to make sure that even within sports stuff, that stuff is pushed down the throat of this is normal, normal right? And, and what's happening is, is that it's, learnt, it's leading to a chaos uh, even among us. And so when Elijah is speaking truth, I, I love the fact that he is stirring up Israel in the right type of way. Israel needed to be stirred up at this point, right? And needed to be turned back to God. And it is always a good thing to stir up trouble when the status quo is disobedience. It's always a good thing. And so Elijah is going to stir it up because the status quo is disobedience. And, and so he's going to come alongside and tell them that what they've been doing is wrong and they don't want to hear it. So we get to verse 20, and this is what happens. Obviously, the, the famous um, passage of Scripture in Elijah's day it says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. I love this. You're limping between two different ways, back and forth. You say that you follow the Lord of the Bible, but your actions are saying something completely different. How long are you going to go back and forth between these two different opinions? If, so that even when he says, if the Lord is God, if Yahweh is Elohim, if the great I am is the true God, then follow him and don't apologize for it. If Baal is it, put everything you got. Stop playing in both fields. You can't do this. You've got to decide which one is the Lord. So the people don't answer him a word, right? Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and then let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they repaired it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud. For he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey and perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now, for anybody who feels like you have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, apparently Elijah does as well, right? Hey, maybe you aren't loud enough. Maybe your God's in the bathroom. Literally what he's saying here. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's just caught up for a second. Maybe you should give him a little bit of private time and he's going to get around to you. Just call a little bit louder. Maybe the door is closed in his house and he hasn't heard you. Just get louder. And people go, smart idea, Elijah. Thanks. So they, they, they step it up a little bit. Verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now they're actually physically harming themselves to try to entice the God to wake up. Cutting themselves. Hurting themselves. Injuring themselves. Made in the image of God. Um, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. 
And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the, bill, the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars of the water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Okay, this is a guy who's got a little bit of faith, don't you think? Okay, I'm like... If, by chance, the Lord would actually bring down fire, don't wet the, the altar. I mean, whatever you do, I mean, maybe, by chance. Elijah's saying, if God's going to send fire down from heaven, it doesn't matter how drenched this thing is, it's going to get burned up. He, he's that confident right now that this is going to happen. Verse 36, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Let me just stop there for a second. When it says that the people may know that you, O Lord, are God, he's literally making a play on words of his name. The name Elijah, el Elisha means Elohim is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. My God is the great I am. And so he's saying in this moment, basically, let this people know, Elijah, let these people know that there is one God and his name is Yahweh. You have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is Elohim. Yahweh, he is Elohim. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, um, when Elijah goes to these people and says, You're limping between two positions. You're wanting to cherry-pick the Bible and do whatever you want to do, and you can't follow both paths. You've got to make a decision. Um, there are a lot of people in our culture that I would say cherry-pick from the Bible. Okay? They want to do whatever they want to do, and they're going to pull out certain promises and think they can apply to them. And people don't have a problem with your way until you begin to talk as if it is the way. Right? Okay, that, that's fine for you if you believe that. Just don't tell everybody else that they believe that. But um, this is an area of, of supreme importance, and I think Elijah points this out perfectly, because if you follow a God that is not worth worship of other people, he's not that impressive. And so Elijah is saying, you made those gods, and this God made you. I'd worship him. And I'm going to show you who has the power to do this. And he puts this contest out for them. And what he's after, don't, don't miss this, in verse 37, he says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are Lord our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, obviously, the, the priests are going to get punished here, but what is Elijah ultimately after? He's wanting the nation of Israel to turn their hearts to God. That's what he's after. It, it's more than just a bragging rights or to say, you know, when you get to heaven, everybody go, oh, Elijah's the guy that had the fire come down. Like, he's going, he really wants to see his nation turned to the Lord. And so, as Elijah shows, I think it's important for us, the desire to win a soul more than an argument. Elijah really doesn't care about winning an argument at this point. His heart is for the souls of people who have been led astray by different idols and temptations, by the priests who have pointed them in a very, very different direction. And so his desire here is that 
that God would be seen and that the people would see that there is no other God beyond him. And so obviously in this, this situation, um, there are many people who I would say are converted, many people who are changed, many people who do, and yet it's also limited, right? It lasts for some people, but it doesn't take sweeping change because as you continue to read through 1 Kings, there are some times when there's a good king and then also a bad king and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And in Israel, as we showed on the chart, I think it was last week, there were no good kings that showed up. So what happens when there are no good kings? What happens when there's not a moral majority? You don't lose the prophetic minority. You keep telling the truth. You keep living for Christ no matter what happens. And so the balance of what the prophets gave, I think, is that the prophets would probably, like you and I say, if I have the opportunity to be led in our nation by a godly king or an ungodly king, I'll take the godly one, right? But if you don't get it, you don't change your faith. You don't change your beliefs. You don't change your practices. You stay faithful. So even if the country moves further away from biblical mandates, does not give Christians a free pass to compromise. So no matter what happens in the nation, no matter what happens, how many people move away from what God is expecting us to do, it doesn't mean that we can just say, okay, it's just we've got to give up. Think about the denominations in this city over the last 41 years. Okay? Um, we were having a conversation about denominations at lunch today. Like, what do these people believe and that people over there believe? And, and Amanda told our kids, not every Baptist is really Baptist. <laughs> she goes, what does that mean? You can go to certain churches in this city that's got Baptists on the name. It just doesn't mean it's a Baptist church, right? In fact, you can be very shocked. You walk into some places. And even that, I'd say beyond even the word Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian, just the word church. And honestly, the shock of what you might hear from those pulpits. It, it's remarkable. And, and what, what is the cause of those denominations? Well, let's go back to the 1980s. Why did this Southern Baptist Convention split between Southern Baptist Convention and all of a sudden something sprung out from it called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship? Have you all heard of the CBF, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship? So there are churches that used to be a part, even in this city. First Baptist Greenville is one of them. First Baptist, flagship, right? Supposed to be, remember we got the First Baptist in the city, but that's supposed to be the flagship. Uh, first Baptist was established as obviously the First Baptist Church. And out from there, you know, we plant this church and this church and this church and this church and this church. First Baptist of what you call a Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Church. If you move to Greenville and you go, okay, I'll go to the First Baptist Church because I'm a Baptist, you might be surprised. Amen. You might be very, very surprised. Greenville was the same way. Uh, I grew up and was baptized in First Baptist Church of Greenwood, South Carolina. When my seminary professor heard that I was baptized at that church, he said, you might need to do a redo, okay? He said, you might need to get another one. I don't know if that counted. And I was like, what? He said, I'm serious. You might need to really get that checked. And I was like, my, I, I meant it. He's like, well, I don't know about those waters, though. And so, like, we had this ongoing discussion. But uh, why, why did those denominations happen? Why did the Southern Baptist Convention split between that and the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship back in the 1980s? On is the Bible something that we're going to base our lives on or not? Or can you play loose with the text when it gets uncomfortable in our culture? And so it really had to do with, is the Word of God reliable, sufficient, accurate? And so um, if you didn't know this, um, Furman University, right? was the flagship Southern Baptist school. 
You go by there and see that campus and those nice buildings and that nice grass, that was cooperative program money built upon. And then around a certain time, it went its own way. Why? Because it got liberal professors and liberal leaders in there, and they started veering away from the school. Um, Six Southern Baptist seminaries throughout the United States. If there is a pastor who is in his 50s, Right now, a Southern Baptist pastor. And if he went to a conservative Baptist seminary, he went to Southwestern Seminary. There was no other option. There was no other option. Southern Seminary, where I got my degree from, was changed radically uh, 25 years ago, I think. Uh, they brought Al Mohler on to come in and, um, and try to change over the school. When he got and gave his inaugural address, there were people walking out protesting on faculty. On faculty. You know what his first address was to the, the campus? He, um, you normally hear the phrase, uh, don't just stand there, do something. His, his first sermon was this, don't just do something, stand there. His inaugural address to the Southern um, Baptist Theological Seminary was this, you have been very active in doing good things for the Lord, but we're going to learn how to stand on the truth of God's word because it has not changed. And eventually he has to start moving and getting faculty members out and people in positions. And it's all across the convention, all over the place. In the 1980s, there was a huge, literally, the CBF people at that time would say it was a hostile takeover. You know what that meant? They worked really hard to get Charles Stanley as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention a year so that he could nominate people on a nominating committee to start taking back the seminaries and start taking back the International Mission Board to get people in that believe in the Bible at those key positions. And the pressure got so much that a group of people left the Southern Baptist Convention, started the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and now you have Baptist churches all over the country that seem Baptist on the sign they are not in value. Now, has that happened among the Methodists? And the Presbyterians? Yeah. All, all over. Every denomination. You go, it's got this and a this and a this and a this. What is it? It's wanting to play loose with the text and compromise on what God believes so that you can be accepted among the culture. Did it just go out on me? I think it did. I'll talk a little louder. All right. So what takes place is that disciples of Jesus must commit to God's way regardless of what is popular. Regardless of what is popular, we have to decide we're going to stay committed to God's way. So there is a chance, folks. There's a lot of excitement about this. That um, uh, How many of you stayed up and watched the Supreme Court uh, swearing in of Justice Amy Coney Barrett? Some of you did. Uh, it was a significant day for the United States of America, right? I laugh because a lot of Southern Baptists who've never been really um, high on Catholics were like, come on, we're, we're Team Barrett. We're gonna go for it, girl. Uh, it, it, it's a hey, she has conservative biblical values from what we can tell. There's a lot of hope that even within this, there's a lot of, no one is even saying this, but is this moving to an overturn of Roe v. Wade? Could that happen? Yes. If it doesn't happen, are we going to change our belief on it? We, we've got to believe what, what the Bible teaches, regardless of what happens in the culture. I would pray that would happen, but also know this, that even if it doesn't, we can't change what we believe. We should not expect American citizens to ascribe to biblical values. This is very difficult for us to really hold and believe to, but we do need to remember that just because someone is a part of the United States of America does not mean that they have to follow what biblical values are. Just as we mentioned today, we get really upset when people outside the church, right, aren't following what God's Word says. 
But ultimately, it's not about them out there. It's about us in here following to that. So we have to make sure that we're not expecting them to do something that honestly, the, the word, they haven't been changed by it. Here's a few quotes I want to end with that I think are really great. This is from Bruce Ashford. We can engage in politics because we aren't controlled by naive optimism or overwhelming despair. I love that quote. <laughs> you can be engaged in this. You can vote on Tuesday. You can be passionate about it. You can stay up and watch the results. Um, some of y'all are going to stay up. Aren't you? At least we're thankful for the extra hour of sleep we can make it through this week, right? Maybe uh, to stay up a little bit later. Hopefully we'll know something Tuesday night. But we can engage in politics because we aren't controlled by naive optimism. What does that mean? I am not thinking that I have a political candidate that's going to bring about a revival in our country. That's not the president's job to bring about revival. It's the church's job. I want a president who loves the Lord. I want a president who, who is noble. I want a president who is going to follow biblical values. I would love that. But even if we have that, is that going to change the culture? That doesn't get people into heaven, right? It doesn't. So I'm not going to have naive optimism, but I'm also not going to have overwhelming despair. If, I mean, our, um, our gospel group, we were getting together and praying on Wednesday night, and one of the things that we prayed and just we went after, but, you know, sometimes you just kind of you pray a certain thing, but I just said, you know, Lord, even if one day the Antichrist is elected as the President of the United States of America, I'm still going to follow you. I'm, I'm not going to change. And so I'm not going to be overwhelmingly despair come Wednesday, right? Think on Wednesday we having a senior adult luncheon, right? We might be coming in really charged. Some people may be charged up. Some people may be going, oh, the world is crashing, okay? I, I, I get that. But at some level, I'm, I'm not going to have overwhelming despair. I'm going to get up Wednesday morning or Thursday morning, whenever we know what's going on, and I'm going to stay faithful to it. Another quote that he has here, politics should never influence your religion, but if your religion doesn't affect, alter your politics, you've got a weak example. I love that. Don't let your politics influence your religion. Folks, that's happening in so many denominations and churches right now. Politics is the filter which they see their religion. But if your religion doesn't alter your politics, you have a very, very weak example. There should be something in the scriptures that you see that confronts you like a sledgehammer. And you go, I want this, but God's word tells me something very, very different. And so as we, as we conclude tonight, here's, here's if we think through, even if we're not the moral majority, how do we stay that prophetic minority? Let's celebrate when noble policies pass, but commit to biblical mandates even when they don't. I, I hope we can celebrate in the years to come when noble policies pass in this country, when uh, we see people do things and make efforts that are good and noble and right and do show biblical values. But you know what? I'm going to commit to the biblical mandates even if they don't. Even if those policies don't pass, I'm going to stay faithful to it. So what I want us to do is I want us to pray. Um, I want to pray for your week and for your sanity and for our witness uh, among these crazy times. And um, come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and even on Sunday, we're going to be the church together. Amen? So, Father, we thank you that tonight that as we come together as your church, that we can look at the example of Elijah, that even though he did not have a king who honored you, in fact, he had a king that was pushing people away from obedience to you, that he lived on such that he was seen as a troubler of Israel because he was faithful to you. 
And Lord, if we are going through a time right now where the church seems to be a troubler of the United States of America because we're just following you, then let that stick to us just fine. No matter what takes place, we're going to stay faithful. We're going to follow you. We're going to be obedient to you. And um, God, I do pray for Tuesday um, among our, our nation. Um, Lord, I, I pray I, we want your will to be done above all else. God, regardless of who wins, there's going to be half of our country that is very, very upset. And there are already cities right now that are boarding up windows and putting in um, systems in place to kind of deal with any type of protest that may come. Um, and so as the people of God, help us be people of reason and love and compassion, of wisdom and discernment. Help us continue to be the church regardless of what happens. And so, Lord, um, I love to see Elijah live and be faithful through Ahab. I love watching Daniel be faithful through um, Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Darius. And, Lord, if they can stay faithful through that, no matter what happens on Tuesday, we can stay faithful. You are our King, you are our Lord, and you watch over us. So, Lord, uh, help us continue to walk in that hope and that optimism and that trust and peace that you provide. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you, folks.